So uh, last week, Pastor Brian kicked off our new series that we're calling Getting Ready for the End of the World, which is a great name, I think. And really what we wanted to explore in this series is just that, the end of the world and what exactly we should be doing as we uh, wait for it to happen. And you know, there's a lot of us in this room, maybe not a lot, maybe some of us at least in this room, uh, that really are interested in end times and prophecy and all that. And there's a lot of theories out there about that. There's theories and predictions and all sorts of numbers and everything that try to explain uh, what this end of the world is going to look like. And I was thinking about this this week. Um, It's not just a couple of people in this room that are interested in the end of the world these days. It's really a new cultural phenomenon, if you think about it. There is a new uh, movie genre, uh, perhaps in the last uh, two, three decades, that's really gained a lot of traction in the past uh, few years, called post-apocalyptic. How many of you have seen a post-apocalyptic movie or read a post-apocalyptic book? Two more hands were raised. That's good. We read here. I'm just kidding. No, I saw a lot of hands. I saw a lot of hands. But really, there's a ton of post-apocalyptic stuff coming out of Hollywood these days and books being written these days as well. Um, The new Mad Max movie comes to mind. Um, For you that love TV, The Walking Dead is like a hugely followed show in our culture. And in fact, it's not just adults that are interested at a cultural level in uh, kind of the post-apocalyptic world. It also is reaching our kids. Kids, how many of us have seen the movie Wally? Yeah, we've seen it. That you know, the movie about that adorable trash compacting robot, right? That that somehow brings humans back to the earth after they had to leave from destroying it or trashing it or whatever had happened. It seems like as a culture, we are very interested in the end of the world. And, and it got me thinking, I wonder, I wonder if some of us are perhaps more interested in what I would call some kind of pop apocalypticism than we are about what the Bible says about the end of the world. At least it's something to think about. Now, wherever you may be this morning on the topic of Jesus' return, whether you know, you're one of those people that's obsessed with every detail and you've got your timeline on your wall in your living room of what's going to happen you know, minute by minute, or whether you're one of those people that's really kind of more interested in you know, the cultural phenomenon of post-apocalyptic, or frankly, perhaps there's some of us in this room that we just don't really care at all. We're kind of oblivious or apathetic to any idea of an end. You know, we all have to grapple with the truth that one day Jesus is going to return. Jesus' return is imminent. You know, there's a guy that we've all seen on the street corner, right? And uh, he's holding up this sign. And what does the sign say? The end is near. And maybe, maybe he's a little bit more right than we think he is. And the question is, Because Jesus is coming and it is imminent and perhaps it's even soon, what do we do while we wait? And last week, Pastor Brian gave us a a good start on a list of some of the things we should be doing. Uh, We should live with a sense of urgency while we wait. We should live with great awareness while we wait. We should live with continued faithfulness while we wait. And we should live with ever-growing wisdom while we wait. And this morning, we will um, add to this list as well. What do we do while we wait? Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to stand and face the center of the room. Don't do it yet. 
and we're going to listen to scripture, but we're going to do, we're going to add on to what we do every week this morning. Just one extra thing. When we stand and we face the center of the room to hear the scripture reading this morning, I want you to ask yourself a question. What do you see when you hear the scripture being read? What do you see? Can we do this? I think we can. Um, our, our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And our scripture reader this morning is Chet Suter. Um, so, Chet, you can head on up. And then, again, what we do here is we stand and we face the center of the room where the scripture's read. And the reason we do so is because uh, the scriptures are the story of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, the story of grace. So, Chet, whenever you're ready, you can get rolling. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on each horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter pr proud words and prophecies, excuse me, blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and for those who lived in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given an authority over every tribe people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have been not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. It's called, calls for patience, endurance, faithfulness on the part of God's people. Thank you, Chet. You may be seated. So what did you see? Uh, when I was in elementary school, the book Left Behind came out, and then shortly after that, a film came out as well, uh, starring Kirk Cameron. And I remember everyone got really excited about it in my family and my church community. And um, I remember watching the film, and everyone else around me is excited, and I was watching the film, and I was, as a little kid, I was terrified. 
of this movie, Left Behind. You know, in the film, there was this scene where there's this pastor in a church and this pastor's kind of sitting on the ground and he's got a racquetball and he keeps throwing it against the wall and catching it and throwing it against the wall and catching it. And, and he, he's got his eyes downcast and he looks quite sad. And, you know, the reason he's sad is because this pastor of this church who led this flock for Jesus was left behind. And it totally freaked me out as a kid because I thought if, if a pastor can get left behind, well, is there a chance even for me to get taken? I don't think there is as a little kid. And so I began reading uh, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And I tried to study up on the end times because I really, really just didn't want to get left behind. I was really nervous about it. However, it didn't take terribly long until I stopped reading. And the reason I stopped reading was because I quickly realized that I had no idea what to do with the words that I was reading. Have you had this experience? You know, Revelation and Daniel, these are the end times books of the Bible, but they were also the most uh, confusing books in the Bible to my childhood self. You know, perhaps, perhaps as we listen to the words this morning out of Revelation 13, um, you had the same experience of, I have no idea what's going on in this passage. It's very confusing. And it's confusing because Revelation is a book um, in the genre of prophecy. And prophecy is full of metaphors and numbers and strange images. Now, as we were reading Revelation 13 this morning, if you felt mostly lost as we listened along, have no fear because you are not alone. You are in good company. In the, in the 1500s, there was a Protestant reformer. His name was John Calvin. In fact, John Calvin um, is the man that we really owe a lot of our theological foundation to um, here at TFRC. And John Calvin was a talented biblical expositor in his day. He could read scripture very well. In fact, he could read scripture so well that he wrote a lot on scripture. He wrote commentaries and books about virtually every book of the Bible save one. Guess what book he didn't write a commentary on? Revelation. And if you're wondering why, well, he gives us an answer. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes from John Calvin. This is what he says. The study of Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him that way. Does that sound about right to you? Interpreting biblical prophecy can be incredibly confusing. What did you see this morning as we read through Revelation 13. What did you see? Because what you saw is important. You see, when we read the Bible, how we read the Bible is just as important as the words in the Bible. Now, before you get mad at me for saying something like this, just let me, let me back this up a second. It, it is estimated that there are over 9,000 different denominations in Protestant Christianity alone. 9,000. And you want to know the reason why there's 9,000? Because the church has figured out 9,000 different ways to read the Bible. You thought about this. And they're all using pretty much the same Bible. 
how we read the Bible is as important as the words in the Bible itself because it determines what they mean. Now, let me recount our scripture reading for us just a minute, Revelation 13. This is, this is how it goes. So the passage goes. Apparently on some shoreline somewhere, there is a dragon hanging out. And, and previously in Revelation, you hear a little bit more about the dragon. It's a red dragon. He's got lots of heads. It's pretty cool. And so this dragon is hanging out on the shoreline. And then out of the water, I'm guessing somewhere near the dragon, pops this crazy beast out of the water. And I'm guessing it's hanging out next to the dragon for a little bit or something. However, we do get a really good description of what this beast that came out of the water looks like. This beast had ten horns upon seven heads. And then this beast had ten crowns on the ten horns. And something was inscribed on each of the crowns. Something ungodly, something bad, something blasphemous was on each one of these crowns. And the beast had some pretty crazy features, minus all of the heads. The beast looked like a leopard with feet like a bear. Not, he wasn't bare feet, he had feet like a bear. And a mouth like a lion. And this beast is given all kinds of power from the dragon on the shore. And everyone in the world is worshiping the dragon because they love the beast so much. And the beast apparently has a potty mouth. And the beast says all these terrible things all the time. It has lots of power, but it only has a lot of power for 42 months specifically. But then the beast, the beast conquers God's people. And everyone on earth that was not in the book of life is under the beast's authority. Any questions? <laughs> Are we confused yet? Many Christ followers throughout history have thought about these images of a dragon and a beast, and unsurprisingly, they have interpreted them in very different ways. You know, this week, I just did a quick Google search just to see what an artistic rendering of some of these uh, beasts and dragons might look like. And here's a, pic a picture of the dragon. It's pretty awesome, I think. It's pretty sweet. Uh, go to the next one. Even scarier, I think. This is actually from, it's, they call it the Brick Bible. It's somebody created all of these Lego figures to tell the story of the Bible. It's awesome. It's something you should buy. Let's look at the beast. I love this one because the beast has body armor on, and I think that's really cool. I'll go to the next one. I think this one's the most amazing, though. It's got a bear head and a lion head and cheetah leopard heads and cheetah body. The best part, though, is it has a triceratops head, and I have no idea where this guy got that from. It's pretty wonderful, I think. But seriously, the question is, what are we supposed to see when we read about the dragon and the beast in Revelation 13? What are we supposed to see? And perhaps just a broader question, how are we supposed to see prophecy in general? Now, some people will choose to see uh, Revelation 13 in the most literal sense possible, meaning what you see is what you get. Someday in the future, a literal dragon will be standing on a literal shoreline, probably in a coastal town, and a literal uh, seven-headed, you know, ten-horned uh, beast will appear out of the water and hang out by the dragon for a second. That is all going to happen. It will be an incredibly wild time. It will be like the movie Pacific Rim. It's going to be great. 
And then there are varying degrees on how literal some people are. Some people choose to be a little less literal, but try to be as literal as they can within reason. And then there are others who choose to read Revelation 13 differently. You know, instead of reading our passage with great attention to literalism, others choose to read the prophecies metaphorically. So the beast and the dragon, they stand for some prominent figure or empire in the future that's going to look very similar in some kind of attribute to the beast or the dragon. In, in fact, some people take metaphor so far that they would argue that the whole book of Revelation should only be understood as a cosmic battle between the good guys and the bad guys, good and evil, you know, God and Satan, and God gets to win the day, and that's really all you should glean from it. The beast and the dragon, then they only represent evil in the world in some generic sense. And these two interpretations of Revelation 13 have been extensively subscribed to by the church. And all of these interpretations determine what we see when we read prophecy, especially true in Revelation 13. And these two different kinds of interpretation start with one basic question. What do I see? What do I see when I read these things? You see, when we read something, we tend to start from our own point of view, don't we? What do I understand this thing to mean? You know, we come up with some kind of interpretation based upon our own thoughts or presuppositions or worldview or logic or whatever it may be. My question is, what if instead of asking, what do I see? I started asking, well, what did they see? What did they see? What, what did the original readers of Revelation 13 see when they read it? How did they understand it? Now, to understand what they saw, we need to talk about prophecy for a second. You know, most of us, when we hear the term prophecy, we think of something. What do we think about? What do you got? The future, right? Prophecy equals future. It's something that's going to happen sometime far off in the timeline. And, and to some extent... Prophecy has a futuristic um, piece to it. However, it's only a small piece of prophecy. You see, when the prophets spoke in Scripture to the people of God, uh, whether in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or, or the New Testament, the original listeners would not have been as interested in what's going to be, but what is going on in their very present day. Basically, when they would receive a prophecy, they would assume that it had a present day implication. What does it mean now? So, thinking of Revelation 13, what was the present for the original readers? What was their present life like? Well, there's a lot that was going on. Um, in that day, uh, there was a rise of persecution like the church had never seen before. Um, a lot of scholars think that the book of Revelation was written sometime between 70 and 80, sometime in the first century. In AD 64, you know, six, ten years earlier, a fire broke out in Rome. 
And Rome burned, uh, two-thirds of Rome burned to the ground like that, really, really quickly. And, and the history bears out that actually the emperor at the time, his name was Nero, was probably the one that was responsible for starting the fire. However, in order to avoid the blame, this Nero, the emperor, publicly made a proclamation that it was the Christians that were responsible for the fire in Rome that burned Rome to the ground. And the response to this, of course, was amazing, terrible persecution of the church. In fact, there's record of Nero after this using Christians as human torches to light up the city of Rome at night. It was that bad. It was a tremendously difficult time for the church. Now, that was 64 AD. Fast forward 60 years, or six years, to AD 70. Pastor Brian talked about this a bit last week. The loss of the temple. At one point in 70, the Roman legions descended upon Jerusalem, and they razed the whole town. They burned it to the ground. And they didn't leave any stones standing. They went straight to the temple, and they burned the temple to the ground too. And this mattered because Jerusalem was where the leaders of the church resided. It was the center point. This was the place where, you know, the church was founded in some sense. It's where the authority was. But then suddenly, in an instant, Jerusalem and the temple are gone. And the Jews and Christians at the time saw this as Rome conquering them. Rome conquered Jerusalem. And now, in some sense, Christianity was homeless. Now, during this time, can't give specific dates to it, was the rise of something else. The rise of forced emperor worship. So the emperor Nero, like I talked about, and several other emperors, they said, yes, we are emperors. We're authorities here, but we want to be more than that. We're not just emperors. We are gods. We belong in the pantheon of the gods of Rome. And we, you know, deserve worship as a god, as, you know, a god would. And, and I'm actually going to pass a law saying that everyone has to worship me because that's how this is going to work. And that didn't disclude Christians. And so now Christians were in a conundrum. They were being forced to worship this emperor that they didn't want to worship, and are they going to do it or not? Am I going to worship this emperor or not? Because if I choose not to, I will literally be thrown to the lions. I will die. This is what uh, the early readers of Revelation 13 were living. This was their life. Uh, And I can't imagine what they were thinking through all this. God, when is the kingdom going to come? Seriously, we can't do this much longer. Can the kingdom even come? Is it going to come at all? Because I'm not sure it is. Is Rome just too powerful? Is God not powerful enough? Is is there truly any hope for my circumstances? Is it even worth sticking to my faith? You see, what the original readers saw when they read Revelation 13 was not something terribly far off in the future, but a very real present. So how did these early Christians see Revelation 13? Well, who's the dragon? Well, John actually, a chapter before, that John's the author, he actually gives us uh, some insight on that in Revelation 12, 9. He says, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent was called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world to stay. So the dragon is Satan, and that one's easy. But the beast is a little bit more tricky to discern. Now, 
I'm going to tell you now, this is my opinion, and there are a lot of people that probably disagree with me. But I want to share this. I think that the first readers, as they're reading Revelation 13, they would have seen the beast as the Roman Empire. It would have been easy for them to make that connection. In fact, uh, in our passage, one of the beasts had this fatal wound that was healed. And actually at the time, Nero, uh, he uh, lost his seat of power due to his madness. He went crazy and he actually killed himself. And then all these other people started posing as Nero, pretending that he came back from the dead, that he was resurrected, which I think is interesting at least. But there's other reasons to think that it's the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire at the time demanded, uh, began demanding worship of the emperor as a god. Listen to verse 4 of our scripture reading. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? They worshipped the beast. And... The Roman Empire, just years before, sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Listen to verse 6. The beast opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was their lived reality. The first readers of Revelation probably made the connection that the beast was probably actually just the Roman Empire. But you see, that's not the primary concern of prophecy. The primary concern for the first readers of Revelation was not who the beast is or who the dragon is. The primary concern was, how do I go on throughout this horrible persecution? How do I keep going? What are we supposed to do while we wait in this terrible difficulty of persecution? Should we even wait at all? And Revelation 13.10, I think, gives the answer. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. You see, this is the message of Revelation 13. This is what I think the earliest readers saw when they read Revelation 13. What do we do while we wait, especially when life gets really, really hard? Some of us in this room actually might be asking that question this very moment. You know, as a pastor, I get the privilege of being with people in some of their most difficult moments in their lives, some of their worst hardships. I get to be with people through death and disease and family difficulties and divorce and relationship fallouts, and I could make the list go on and on and on. And I get to see often how people respond through these hardships. And what I have noticed is that people tend to respond spiritually in two different ways uh, throughout their hardships. Um, people either, one, they go through a hardship and spiritually they find themselves clinging to God more and more closely. And then I see the opposite, where they're in a hardship, something bad happened, and that situation causes them to push further and further and further away from God. 
And I'm not judging you the response. I get it. Life sometimes doesn't make sense. Sometimes life is just plain hard and hard to understand. You see, I think John, the one who wrote Revelation, was probably seeing these same things in his people. Some were finding themselves closer and closer to God. Perhaps some of them were finding themselves so close to God that they were willing to draw the sword and go charge at Rome, right? They were going to get after it. Then there were the others where the hardship continued and got worse and worse. And every single time it just pushed them further and further and further away from God. But you see, John, what he does is he calls his people to patience, endurance, and faithfulness. The question is why? Why should we be patient? And why should we endure? And why should we be faithful? We see the answer is simple. Hope. Hope. We can endure and stay faithful because we cling to the hope that Jesus is coming back. He is. And when we have that resilient hope that Jesus is coming back, the storms of life can hit us hard and it won't matter because we know Jesus is coming back. We're going to be okay. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything right again, the way it's supposed to be. And he'll be a king and he will rule justly. In all of our hardships, they will be a thing of the past. You see, genuine hope gives us the power to keep going. It gave the first readers of Revelation the power to keep going. Rome could do its worst. Death could do its worst. Pain could do its worst. Disappointment and shame and grief could all do its worst. But in their hope in Jesus' return, it's there that they could persevere. Look, perhaps this morning you're feeling the apathy around this topic. You just don't really care. Jesus will come back when he comes back. It doesn't really matter. But you see, it, the return of Jesus is the thing that allows us to persevere through our hardship. It allows us to go on. Because we know the kingdom's coming. It's not going to be forever. You know, when I was in high school, um, I was in a band and I went on a, a mission trip to Ensenada, Mexico, and we got to play around um, with all of these little churches in Ensenada and play worship for them. It was actually a really great time. And, and part of the trip was we actually tented it out in the desert with a large group of other people. And there was a speaker that would speak every single morning. And so you'd, you know, unzip your tent, you'd walk out in the morning, and then you'd listen to this speaker speak. And the first morning, the speaker spoke about hope. And he said, every single day when I wake up, I walk out of my house and I look outside and I look to see if Jesus came back yet. Is Jesus coming back today? And you say a little prayer every day, Jesus, are you coming back today? Please come back. We long for your return. And he challenged us through that week to do the same thing. Every single day we'll wake up, we'll unzip our tent and we'll say that little prayer. Jesus, are you coming back today? Are you coming back today? Jesus, please come back soon. And to believe in that. You know, what, what if we became a people that constantly were filled with the hope that Jesus could be coming any time and we anticipated it? We knew Jesus could return any moment and we just were longing for that and we spent our whole lives thinking about that. That the kingdom of God was going to be here and it was imminent and it was coming. Look, we could persevere through anything. 
if we believe that. Anything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for even the book of Revelation and all its confusion. But God, we ultimately thank you for hope. God, that you're coming back soon and we can plan on that. And that means whatever our life circumstance, God, you're coming back and you're gonna do something about it and we can be assured of that. God, we pray that if we feel apathetic or we, we feel like we're faltering in our faith about your return, God, please send your spirit on us to fill us with that hope, to fill us with the faith that you are coming back. And we thank you for that. All in Jesus' name, amen.